Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everyone, Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I've long been a volunteer, mentor, and now avid podcaster for Venture for America. It's a program that I, as an entrepreneur, really respect. It's, it's a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates who launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, you can visit ventureforamerica.org. I hope you're, you are or are about to become a loyal listener to our podcast. Please take a moment to like our show on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy Scheinwald. Um, we love listeners. Tell someone about our podcast. Today we have... Avi Millman on the show. After graduating from Princeton, Avi joined Stephen Barry's, a billion-dollar retailer of clothes aimed at a college audience where he served as director of supply chain. He then moved on to Qtonic as employee number four, leading the company's sales in the New York City region. An avid traveler, Avi launched Stray Boots, a company which created online scavenger hunts as a way to make discovering cities a lot more fun for groups. Stray Boots raised $2.5 million, and Avi proudly made clients, and these are his words, quote, disgustingly happy. Avi recently left Stray Boots and is now leading Bobby Pin, which is a way of keeping track of, of and sharing uh, our favorite spots. We're thrilled to have Avi Millman on the show today. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Avi, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you graduated from Princeton in 2005 with a history degree, and history doesn't exactly scream supply chain. So I'm curious how you found your first job at Stephen Berry's, um, ultimately becoming a, a director of supply chain with a history degree as opposed to, say, an engineering degree. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. I was um, finding myself uh, senior spring, actually enjoying myself senior spring of college, and hadn't really given much thought to what I was going to be doing. Uh, some of my classmates had given that a little more forethought. Uh, and Stephen Barry's was the only non-financial, non-consulting company that showed up to this career fair, and I noticed them because the recruiter was wearing a hooded sweatshirt instead of a suit and tie. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I gave them my name and number, and I applied. And uh, they had a really interesting recruiting model for a retail national retail chain at the time, where they were trying to get these fresh out of college kids from the best schools around the country, and trying to really empower us, which I thought was um, super compelling. They essentially promised not a lot of money at all, but that you would get real responsibility. Sounds like the private version of VFA. Yeah, they. <laughs> it really in some ways was. Um, so it was crazy. Uh, they 
sort of put me into this inter internal consulting role in the company, despite the history degree. Uh, actually, none of us really knew what we were doing. We we're all liberal arts folks, and I was working for the chief operating officer, who was an incredible mentor. And as I got involved with different areas of the company, they just sort of wrapped them under me, which was just really impeccable timing and incredible luck. I did very little to deserve it. Um, it was a great learning experience. It was a really hands-on learning experience, and I'm sure I botched a ton of things. Well, it's funny. So you're sure you botched a ton of things. Like I, I guess I remember this from the, the time I, I, in a previous life, I was I was a speechwriter for an ambassador, and I would go and give these talks, and people would refer to me as a speechwriter, and I'd be like, I don't think these people realize that like I am just a guy in like jeans and t-shirt <laughs> basically. I'm pretending. I'm putting on a suit every day to make myself that, and and that's sort of what gives me a little bit of credibility. And like I was wondering if you had that same kind of feeling where. I mean, you were running. I looked at these. You were 200 stores worth of merchandise, a billion dollars. You have uh, 40 people directly under your management, and and in, in um, yeah, it, kinda, it reads like I fabricated it. Um, but were they were they like? I mean, were you like? Yeah, but I, I am this guy. I can manage the supply chain. Were you like, someone's gonna figure out that I've got a history degree and that I'm two years out of college. And <laughs> uh, take yeah, this away from it was me. surreal. You know, it was also my first job. So I think a lot of us. I I may have done sort of the luckiest there of anybody but a lot of us were in over our heads but we also didn't appreciate it because we had no context it was my first gig i thought oh if i'm this awesome you know <laughs> i could transfer from being this guy at stephen barry's to this guy at like ralph lauren clearly not um <laughs> but they did really believe in in intelligent people and gave us they sort of believed that if you were smart enough to figure things out and you were a good communicator and you were analytical and thoughtful that they could trust you with real responsibilities. I think they may have overdone that a little bit. Um, and I think there were probably not enough experienced people around the table, but they did deputize a bunch of us to do good work and to learn quickly. And it was just an incredible time. With that said, it didn't last very long. So, um, you know, there's, it may have been mixed results, but it, for those of us who were lucky enough to participate in it, it was great. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a really great place to have a first job, obviously. And and so Stephen Berry's hits like some hard times of the financial crisis. I think maybe had a bit of a liquidity crisis themselves. Yeah. And but like if they hadn't run into the tough times, would would you like possibly still be there today? Like, you know, you I it? asked. I actually got out a few months before their first round of layoffs. Uh, people always ask me, but the timing of my departure was. Uh, unintentionally precipi uh, precipitated sort of the bad times there and people asked me like did I know something because I certainly had access to the founders uh, and upper and upper management I was part of upper management I knew that there were some endemic issues but actually thought it was more growing pains uh, Stephen Barry's operated a lot like some startups we see actually a lot like the unicorns we see today in that a large percentage of their stores were never profitable. And it was this mm. growth story where through economies of scale, we thought and hoped that these stores that were not profitable would ultimately become profitable. And so, so long as you kept growing, that was okay, particularly because they got what these, uh, what was called tenant allowances. So they got paid up front actually to move into malls, mm. um, which sounds, uh, pyramid scheme e, but they got paid up front, and then over time these stores would become less, wouldn't be profitable. But the thought was ultimately we could, uh, we could get these stores profitable. So, sort of the same way you see a lot of startups today raising a ton of funding, 
undercutting competitors with sort of the future promise mm-hmm. that it'll all work out. Um, and then what happened was 2008 hits. You have the credit crisis, which was terrible. But then also you have the real estate crisis. So all the malls were hit really hard. And this, I mean, in a flash of the pan, it just sort of went up. Right. But those huh. of us who were there couldn't. So you, so you left just before the, before, before the ship sank. And you did something that was like completely... Seemingly the exact reverse of what Stephen, of what this company was, right? You went to a four. You were the fourth person at a startup. Yeah, I just- tend. I think I gloss over this like pit stop in the British Virgin Islands where I was the third person in a company selling advertising space. But I, so bad. It was not bad. Uh, it was the cushiest thing I walked away from. I've walked away from some cushy. Cushy situations. Um, it's not a bad tagline. You know, not, not a bad thing to be able to say about yourself. I've that's my headline, right? <laughs> on LinkedIn. The Avi uh, Millman story. I've walked away from cushy, cushy situations. <laughs> uh, future book title. Yeah, so that's what we're going with. There we go. Okay. What um, were we talking? Oh, so. <laughs> so I, I got you off track. I was talking about moving from like st- massive Stephen Berry's like four uh, after the British Virgin Islands. Tonic, sorry, Q-tonic, I think is, and that's like you're the fourth Selling person tonic there. Water. So yeah, I left Stephen Barry's again. I was sort of spoiled, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I thought it wasn't logistics, and it wasn't retail. Um, and so what is that? Where do you go? I, it was sort of uh, open-ended. So I thought I would try sales. Sales sounded interesting. Uh, turns out I, I really didn't like sales after doing it, but it was a great learning experience. So I dove into this British Virgin Islands gig and then got recruited from there by a camp counselor of mine who had started uh, Q-Tonic at the time. His name is Jordan Silbert. Uh, he's a really brilliant guy who had uh, been at Yale Business School under a famous professor there named Jerry Nailbuff. I don't know if you've heard of him. Hmm. He, I think, was uh, part of the team that launched and ultimately sold Honest, I believe, Honest hmm. Tea. Okay. So Jordan had a great mentor there. He was looking to hire his first salesperson. He was doing the sales. And he sent me a job description being like, do you you know, you're you know, 10 years younger than me. Do you know anybody who would fit this description who just wants to run around the city all day, going to bars, restaurants, hotels, supermarkets, selling tonic water? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, that, that sounds like that me. Guy. I happen to be that guy. So... It sounded like a really cool opportunity working with uh, a couple guys I knew from this summer camp. Um, and I think had I not had that personal connection, there's no way I would ever have considered the gig or gotten the gig. Right. But, you know, again, it promised like really hands-on stuff. I just didn't want to be like sitting at a computer crunching spreadsheets. So that's why I went to Stephen Barry's is they sort of promised responsibility. And then that's why I went to Qtonic was this idea that you know, really early stage, you're probably going to get to touch everything. You're going to get to learn through hands-on doing. And so it was a grind. It was like pretty terrible. You just cold called every single place in the city and they just wouldn't pick up or they'd tell you no. But it was cool. It was worth it. And so what, what led you to, to, to leave Qtonic at slash start Stray Boots? How did, how did that decision-making process occur? The easiest way to describe it is probably that I was a backseat driver, uh, both at Stephen Barry's and Qtonic in the sense that I was working with the guys who started the companies, questioning their decisions and all of that, and also looking at the guys in control and thinking, oh, that looks fun. That looks like I could do it. Um, and so I kind of knew I wanted to start something. Uh, Q, I had some really bad ideas. Unfortunately, I can't remember what they were, and I, I don't know where I wrote any of them down. Um, 
But what happened was, uh, you know, it was a doing sales for a beverage is the biggest grind. It was crazy. I would spend Friday nights being the guy at Whole Foods sampling <clears throat> people, you know, from like, I guess you'd, it would be like five to nine on a Friday night after a day of sales. I'd just be handing out samples of tonic water. So I knew that I didn't want to do that role forever. And I was on a trip to Rome while I was working for Qtonic and just had this moment when I was holding a guidebook that, um, where I realized it was really passive. It just reminded me of my history textbooks, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. this big, thick thing that you're carrying around. <clears throat> And that was the the moment I had the idea for Stray Boots. Um, and I worked on it a little over the summer uh, with my girlfriend at the time. We sort of banged around ideas. The initial, I think, concept was somewhere maybe closer to Foursquare, actually, which is interesting now that we've launched Bobby Pin. It, the first sort of conception of Stray Boots was, had some things in common with Bobby Pin. Um, a lot like GoGoBot, sort of like us. It was meant to be like a gamified social network for travel. Um, I, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> and, I was giving you a, genu- a generous understanding. Okay, okay, got it. Uh, but ultimately, we sort of like gravitated towards this idea that you could turn a, a walking tour into a scavenger hunt and that you could use mobile technology to, to deliver it, and it was good timing. So I listened to this interview with you where you gave this piece of advice that I thought was a great piece of advice. You said, you know, before you, you know, launch your business, you should do something, anything, like start an Etsy store or whatever it might be, um, you know, just to, just to get some of the experience, get some details down, you know, figure out little things that, that are required in starting a little business. So I'm curious, was, 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 was Stray Boots, was that? The, the very first thing you did and, the, and and that's why you gave that advice or was there something that preceded it that yeah no it actually to... was it was I, I think I wish I had done that right um, okay. I felt like all, a lot of the lessons I learned in 2009 so I like quit I, I decided after a few months of like wrestling with stray boots that I had to do this full time you know I'll, I'll, it'll never get off the ground unless I do it full time and I realized in retrospect that a lot of what I learned that first year when I was living with my parents unemployed and I'm lucky enough to you know, have the luxury of doing that. Not everybody comes from a background where they can do that. Um, but I could have totally learned that m- most of the things I learned that year while being employed mm-hmm. and both not had the opportunity cost and also been able, had I learned things that indicated that Stray Boots was a bad idea, I wouldn't have already made that jump. Right. So maybe there's two sides of the same coin in that I was sort of forced to like make it happen by jumping. but. I don't know. I think I think a lot of the stuff you learn just from setting up a business could be could be learned, you know, on any almost like project style hobby right. business. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. And you started you started with with two co-founders, and one of them was your sister, another one was a, was a former coworker. Yep. And I'm curious if you can talk to like some of those dynamics, both oh, man. brother and sister working together. And I know your sister moved on, so. Yep. <laughs> and then two is a brother and sister working with like a non-family member, kind of this like sort of. You know, two people who are a part of something, one person who's not. and Sure, and, sure. Um, 
Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, and even another dynamic that occurs to me, two men and a, and a woman. I mean, there's all so many different dynamics among the three of you there. Um, just speak to some of the dynamics. But I guess particularly interesting to me is, is the brother and sister. Totally. We got a lot of questions, actually, about that when we were raising money. Um, and we did uh, ERA, which was an accelerator, Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator here in New York, which was phenomenal. But there was a husband-wife combo in the same group as us. And we were told that a lot of the VCs that we spoke to would absolutely not invest in a husband-wife combo and were a little more open to brother-sister. I guess they're just worried that there's too much baggage. Um, There certainly is some baggage. So working with my sister was the best and worst thing I ever did. Uh, Would she say the same thing? I think so. Okay. You know, the good stuff is that you have this, like, built-in trust. The bad stuff is that I think there is a feeling that you can't fire each other, and there's a lot of, um, I think there's also a lot of hidden cues just from having grown up with somebody where, like, you know how to push each other's buttons and other elements of that. I'm sure it varies from brother, like, sibling uh, pair to sibling pair. Um, Let me give some examples. You know, uh, my sister is, uh, first of all, she's way smarter than me. She was our CTO, which is very uncommon to have a a female CTO, so that was great. And I think she added um, a ton to everything, but she breaks down any scenario into, I think it's actually her mind of, her coding mind, into what problems can arise from every single thing. So. And this may actually just occur between any founding group now that it now that I think about it. But she would let's say we're we're talking about redoing the website like homepage because I think it'll increase conversion rate on how many tours we sell. She'll break that up into um, how many uh, like what what sorts of issues can come up by redoing that. So rather than my bringing it up, because I, I noticed that if I brought stuff up, she would fight it, I would have Scott bring stuff up. Scott was our third co-founder. I don't know if that puts him in like the middle on some weird dynamic uh, between us, but he would bring up these like these things that we knew Noemi would push back on. And we, we sort of, de- Scott and I developed this like way of handling the big business problems that we, we did Scott feel left out of things was was he was he like no know. so what happened which probably helped is Scott and I actually sort of started the company actually I started the company on my own and then Scott was just getting laid off from <clears> Stephen <throat> Barry's uh, when they he was like the guy who shut the lights off uh, that's crazy yeah it's real and it was apparently like a bloodbath it was pretty unfortunate um, so he didn't know what he was gonna do and I was starting this company and he was like oh this looks cool why don't I start helping out while I'm looking for gigs. And then he just sort of fell in love with Stray Boots and stopped looking for jobs. So he came on board and we were actually working with another startup at the time for our tech. And they pivoted a wave. They were sort of doing, um, sounds like a weird idea, uh, enterprise software for scavenger hunts. Uh, They were trying to sell the software to museums and universities and these Clients, you might imagine it's not that big a market who would like pay for scavenger hunt software. We were like client number two or something or number one. They decided you've now probably heard of this company. It's called Level Up. Um, yeah. They pivoted from scavenger at the time to Level Up. They realized they had good relationships with local businesses 
there was a bit of a loyalty play in there. So they they raised something like $25 million and went into the loyalty space and the digital wallet space and gave us like three weeks notice that their scavenger hunt software would no longer be available. And at that moment, we had to stop being a scavenger hunt content business and become a tech company. So we talked with my sister, who was a freelance web, web developer at the time. We had some sales through this e-commerce site we'd built. And we said, Noemi, that's my sister's name, can you build us this tech? And she she said, yeah, I mean, I'm going to charge you at the time. <laughs> so she charged us as a client, and she worked with us for six months. And then we um, got a former coworker of mine to put money in, and we were able to pay her like a bit of a salary and give her founder shares. And so she was a, really was our technical co-founder, even though it was a year and a half or two years into you know my work. On and, it. and you guys bootstrapped this company to start, and and, and you already talked a little bit about it, about how scrappy you were because you you were back in back in your parents' house. I'm, was your sister there as well? Were you guys like Let's oh my go to work god? Together? No, no, that would have been. <laughs> I was living. I mean, they were nice enough to give me this like studio off the side of their apartment, but it was yeah, it was way too close to home. I had to get out of there. Well, how so? So how? I mean, how scrappy were they? things for you. Can you is, is that uh, uh, yeah you know, I mean we didn't take an income for one year and then we we the second year we literally distributed I don't even know if you call them profits because they were paying our salary so every bit of revenue that wasn't eaten up by cost of goods went to Scott and my salary which was really not a super livable salary he moved back with his parents in New Jersey I mean, who, ha- who has the ability to do this stuff? It really is like a life of privilege if you're able to do this, um, which I know is part of the, the mission uh, is to get more people uh, starting companies. But those of us who at least came from fairly affluent backgrounds have some means to do it. So we, yeah, we took no income one year. We took revenue share the next year. We raised money from this coworker of mine, $125,000. That was enough to get Noemi on board and to like sort of guarantee that we'd have like a minimum income. We're talking like $30,000 here, mm-hmm. which is not really a New York living. And then Eric, who is our director of stores at Stephen Barry's and our investor, made us peg our uh, – salaries to revenue targets. I mean, this is how like cutthroat he was. He's like, you're not burning through this 125K. So Which had to be good. It had to bring you some discipline and some goals. It was great. I mean, right. yeah, in retrospect, I think it was really good, but it was, you know, by no means sort of going out and raising around and like splashing money around. Right. Um, so I think it taught us to be really disciplined with how we spent. Um, but we did reach a point where it was clear that we were spending all of our time, you'll hear the term like in the in the business and not on the business, sure. where you know, we spent every weekend answering phone calls from customers because you'd have people running around doing these scavenger hunts and they'd have a question about what is this? And we have a phone number on the website. Like we answered that on Saturday afternoon and we just took turns and it was a terrible grind, but we also had no time to figure out how to grow the company. And we had one developer, my sister, and so, we did reach a point where it just felt like we need some outside capital. Without that, we're going to be 60 and still like answering the phones on. We like the, we'll never have a chance to actually right. expand out of this. So, so, so you got you you raised some money, but before that, you you went. You mentioned the entrepreneurs roundtable. Um, 
or uh, for a roundtable accelerator, yep. um, ERA, and and you went there in 2012. And that was a couple of years into the company's existence. I'm curious if you can talk about that. Like, I think we think of an accelerator as the very first thing you do. Um, yep. What was the thought process in, in entering in 2012? It's probably going to sound much more elementary than I want it to. Um, you know, I think had we been aware of accelerators and had they been as common as they are now, we probably would have done one earlier on. Um, what happened was I went out to fundraise in 2011, went out to fundraise. What did that really mean? I emailed the Princeton alumni list and said, and you couldn't openly solicit at the time, it was illegal or you get into trouble with the SEC. So you, you email this Princeton alumni list and you say, hey, my company is looking to raise some venture capital or some private um, capital. And I'd really love to talk to people about advice. You can't say like, does anybody want to invest? I'll send you a deck. That's open solicitation. So you can say, I'd love to speak with somebody who has experience doing this for some advice about it, which really means like, does anybody at Princeton have any money to give me? So I had these series of phone calls where somebody would reply and be like, yes, uh, happy to talk with you. You'd have a call, you'd introduce them to Stray Boots and what we were doing, and they'd say, oh, I, maybe I know somebody who does this sort of thing. But that person wasn't really somebody who invested in this type of thing. So it turned into this sort of like chain of phone calls. So one person re refers you to another, refers you to another. And it was just getting nowhere after three, four months of this. And independently, several people from the list uh, and who I spoke to on the phone referred me to ERA. So what ended up happening was uh, I spoke to ERA, and we were really far along. We had a lot more traction uh, than the average company doing an accelerator, and we voiced that concern to them. And what they promised, you know, I think they, they promised different things to different companies at different stages. Some of the folks who were in our class didn't even have a product. It was just two founders rolling in. You know, with the $25,000 that we got, they would be able to quit their jobs. The $25,000 for us was not really meaningful. We already had six-figure revenue at the time. So I go, I went to John Axelrod, who's the managing partner there, and I was like, look, you know, we're really far along compared to these other guys who are um, meeting in the hallway. Why should I do this? And he said, you know, you voiced that your network was fairly limited. I hadn't been building this network in New York, and the New York tech scene wasn't what it is today, and it wasn't what the scene is in the Valley or was in the Valley at the time. And so he he said, look, I think we can make enough introductions. If if you're saying you need to fundraise, he's, he said he could make enough introductions to deliver on that. And what we got from ERA was really a profoundly valuable network of people. Uh, they made dozens and dozens of introductions to angel investors and uh, VC firms, great connections at potential partners uh, like Time Out Magazine. Um, and actually, uh, I think it was through ERA, I met uh, Shara Mendelson, who- oh, a Good, friend, good yeah. friend of mine. There you go. I, I had breakfast with her uh, yesterday. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Lovely person. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and I would never have met her, and that's actually how I was first introduced to VFA. So, you know, it was just, it was like opened a bunch of doors. Uh, the way I, I liken it to going to business school for your business, sort of, um, was going through the accelerator. And while we were a little late in the game, maybe we were like the 
40 year old who rolls into business school, um, but it was still just as valuable for us. So, um, yeah. Incidentally, lest that, lest that breakfast sound like some sort of power breakfast, it's the two of us and our two two-year-olds, or our mm. two-year-old and her one-plus-year-old. Her one, one, one I still haven't old, met so. uh, her daughter. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, you, you, raise, you, know, you raise this $2 million, and as I'm looking on Crunchbase, and I'm like, you know, it's $2 million, and then I'm like, okay, where's the $26 million Series B and the $30 million Series yeah. C, whatever? And, and, and like, I mean that obviously in a fairly cheeky way. Um, you know... Was this just like a, a reasonable investment made by a VC, and then you became profitable, and there was no need for future, f you know, funding, and away you go? Yeah, interesting question. This is the one that makes me sweat. Um, so, the 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 most the frankest answer is Stray Boots turns out to probably not be a billion dollar business, and probably not be as easy a business to scale or as rapid a business to scale as we hoped. So what that means is, you know, we re we raised venture capital with the hopes that the success we had in New York and some other places in the US could be replicated and grown really quickly. It turns out that a lot of the growth we had uh, early on came from both sources that ended up drying up to some extent, but also really positive organic growth that just needs to sort of foment. Um, so let me go into details. You, Stray Boots is a, you know, a, it's a walking tour concept that, you know, even really excited people will use once or twice a year, maybe, a, you know, a few times a year. And that's, you know, ideally we find locals who like doing it in their own hometown because that's really great repeat usage. Um, but what we were charging at the time is roughly, uh, you know, between five and ten dollars a person, and so our average transaction was about twenty bucks. But we found that despite people loving it, like absolutely loving it, we have these insane reviews about, you know, I can't take my ten-year-old anywhere, and now we discovered stray boots, and like we will only travel to a city that has stray boots. It's like insanely positive reviews about this thing and you'll call that person up and you'll be like you did write this why haven't you come back and done a second tour mm -hmm. and we found all these reasons why we couldn't get repeat usage even just the natural use case but it's not available in my city or i have to schedule it or the weather was bad or all of these things it's it's a product that has to be geographically available it has to be um paid for uh based on the revenue model we had developed and so the real answer to why we never raised more money is we actually tried to scale the company in a bunch of different ways. Um, some of it was direct sort of paid advertising to acquire users through Facebook ads. Some of it was licensing the product to museums and universities, actually much like Scavenger had done before us. Um, we In 2014, we actually opened up the platform and let anybody create their own Hmm. scavenger hunt and then publish it and sell it through our platform um, so we sort of uh, an Airbnb marketplace model um, what was interesting is that in each of these concepts the product was really strong but we didn't we didn't see scale get achieved on a revenue side so what we ended up having was like a very sustainable small business on our hands but that's not going to raise a B. There's actually no. You don't want to raise a B or a C right. or all. And, and so that's why I said kind of cheeky. Like there, there is room for 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 
for there, there's a lot of room for businesses to go out there and just become good, solid, viable businesses that, you know, like I think that we, we all get carried away with the, with the, you know, billion dollar unicorn businesses that are now, and some of them are starting to, oh, to, to, to fall and die. And, and that, you know, some of them will be great successes, of course. But you know, I mean, this is this is no. I mean, I, and, I mean, this is from a guy who's a small business person. <laughs> yeah, I'm a bootstrap small business person. This is my baby. You know, you know I'm it's like, funny this is music to my ears. I love hearing about this. Cher also was like very Absolutely. adamant that we shouldn't raise any outside money. Uh, she was great in that regard, at being sort of the counterpoint to all of this this Hollywoodness of of tech. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think. Uh, there's a lot of pressure for people to fundraise as the goal as opposed to building a sustainable business. Absolutely. Um, I think some of that has to do with the culture. I think some of that has to do with like what capital is available. I would like to see still more angel money, so to speak, in New York and in smaller markets. I think it's tough to raise. In some of these markets where VCs have come in big, there still isn't this culture of, of private investors investing, which can have more flexible outcomes. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason we wa- we sort of pivoted away from Stray Boots to Bobby Pin was what you hear all the time, which is that Bobby Pin is a big market with a big upside and a big opportunity, where Stray Boots, we sort of at some point discovered that it probably wasn't that. And that uh, that doesn't make it a bad business, but it does make it a bad venture capital investment. Right. Um, not to... You know, I, yeah, I I love the VCs that invested in us and believed in us and supported us, but I can come in three years later and say it turned out that wasn't a billion dollar business, and though that is what these guys are, are looking for. So talk, so talk about that. Like, <clears throat> what are the, you know, what are you saying to your investors? I mean, are they like, okay, well, you know, you, you gave it your best. They're like, I want my ex. How do you manage that dynamic with these people who put the money in, um, and. And you did, I, I believe you did exit Stray Boots. Yeah, so, so how do you manage that exit as well? You know, I think uh, I think that is challenging. Um, the thing to keep in mind, I think, is that, and what I've learned, I, I would say the hard way, is that when you talk about VCs, you're talking about a lot of different people, and there's just, pe- pe- it's people, right? So some VCs are great guys and are supportive and are, wonderful and are understanding and are gracious. Other VCs are assholes. It varies. There's no there's no way to describe it as a single monolithic term. Um, I think that's also true of our angel investors. You know, ideally you get people around the table who are going to be great in times of crisis, but not everybody is. Um, so you try to do the best you can for everybody in terms of results, meaning you try to give everybody the best return. You try to be transparent. Transparency comes with stress and conflict. I would argue that lack of transparency probably just pushes that crisis down the road, so I don't know that it accomplishes much. Uh, at the end of the day, to speak more specifically, we we tried to find somebody who could operate uh, stray boots as a profitable business. We think we found those people, um, which was good and difficult to find. It's actually very difficult to find people who want to operate a small digital business. Um, it's much easier to find sure. product tuck-ins <clears throat> at large brands and these other 
sort of acquihires and acquisitions that you hear about where a large corporation will buy a startup either for the team or for the IP. It's much harder to say like, hey, we have like a really small profitable thing. Does anybody just kind of want to take this? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was even on these like, you know, buy, sell your business sites and they didn't go anywhere and it didn't help. But it's hard to find a buyer for those. So how did you ultimately like do it? Was it just fortuitous? It was actually through our network. So we, one of our investors knew guys who operate small digital businesses and had gotten to know me through uh, his investment. And we sat down and I sort of walked him through how this could be a really valuable asset for the right people. Um, but with regards to, to investors, I don't think there's a silver bullet, I think, um, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I, I would guess that every outcome is dependent on the individuals, the exact circumstances, and how people handle challenging situations. Um, so I think, uh, long story short, you just it, it comes down to communication and at some level the personalities that you're dealing with. I, 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 we gotta. <clears throat> I want to talk about your, your, sure, yeah. your about Bobby Pin, um, but I gotta ask one last straight boots question, mm -hmm. and you know, a, not a business question. Lots of different tours. Which one was your favorite? <laughs> so, to, amazing thing is, I actually built like the first few dozen. So for a while, I couldn't do many of our tours because I'd done them or scavenger hunts because they they have these challenges. Uh, the the um, French Quarter in New Orleans is just awesome. It's got so much weird stuff. And his, it's like weird stuff, history, new and old. It's perfect for stray boots. It's like made for that. Um, in New York, our Chinatown tour is awesome. And I just did our Chinatown San Francisco tour, which is incredible. Hmm. And our center city, Philly, I, I everybody from New York kind of like looks down on Philly for some reason. Mm -hmm. Philly is pretty amazing. And center city is like packed with this both history. Again, it's like history with interesting new cultural stuff on top. Okay, good. I'm going to put mental, mental bookmark there. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So, talk, so let's talk about Bobby Pin. Um, how how different is it the second time round? You know, are you are you every bit as as scrappy and desperate? Are you back on your parents' couch uh, at this time? <laughs> you know, assuming as, you, I'm assuming you're not. <laughs> as you get older, I guess your your um, tolerance for certain things uh, wanes like like uh, a pullout. So it's different. Um, what's nice is you you've learned some of those lessons uh, about every element, you know, whether it's product development and operating more agilely or whether it's fundraising or even just like work-life balance, all these things that can get in the way. Um, so it's nice in that regard. Uh, what was really good about Bobby Pin is it was the team from Stray Boots, half the team from Stray Boots. So what ended up happening with Bobby Pin is uh, we built that, we opened up the platform for Stray Boots and the people who were building tours on Stray Boots really liked plotting their favorite spots and sharing them. 
and they really didn't like doing cultural research about like the history of the area. So we found that people, all they really wanted to do was like share a list of their like top spots in the city. And that became Bobby Pin. Um, and so the great part is that we had the team that was already working really well together. So even though it was starting from scratch, it wasn't really starting from scratch. You had this familiarity with the people, you had funding and relationships with investors. In some ways, it was a big head start. You, in some ways, had product development and some level of validation with users. It was very different than sort of like the mo- the conceptual moment when you're on the trip and how the hell am I going to turn nothing into something? We started with something. Right. Um, but, but what's exciting about it is uh, that it's a totally different even though they're so tangentially related, it's a totally different business. It's a different product. It's a different business model. It's it, it is starting to, from scratch in that regard. And and you're, you know, it seems like to me like you're 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 entering a space that has you know, <laughs> very daunting, well-funded, established competitors like Yelp and 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 Foursquare and others. I mean, I, you know, what are you doing differently? Oh, to they're all yourself? getting and, butchered too. Yeah. Um, so. The local recommendation space is probably like the most crowded space you've ever, <laughs> ever seen. Because not only is, are there all these incumbents, but everybody has the problem. Everybody's trying to solve it. I mean, quite honestly, people have been solving it since Time Out magazine. I mean, I, somebody was just giving it out outside the subway, but like, you know, it's still published mm-hmm. in paper form. Um, <laughs> As is Lonely Planet in book form. I I wish people could see the incredulousness of your face. Paper form. (laughs) So, I mean, here's the thing, right? There are incumbents, there's Yelp and TripAdvisor, who have done an insane job. Being a guy who's trying to scale something very similar to them, I'm in awe of the something like 300 million reviews on TripAdvisor. Like, it's just silly. It's, It's absurd how successful both companies have been on getting people to participate in this content experiment. I'm just blown away by how impressive it is. Um, With this, you know, at the same time, their product sucks for 2016. Just to be like, everybody uses those things and they're good for some things, but it's incredibly time consuming and frustrating because you're just reading reviews from conflicting people who you've never met. And so, we, we just all have had this, ex- like somebody I was just talking to today called it like the bipolar reviewer. People review stuff when they have a great time or a terrible time. And it's a great point. And so like, yes, you're complaining about like the stain on the carpet. Like that really doesn't tell me whether it's a good hotel. Um, and same, by the same token, the waiter had a bad day and <clears throat> gave you like, a, you know, a sideways look. Does that mean this restaurant is forever polluted? So... More, I mean, instead of getting bogged down in that, I think the point is that there's I, th- I think the space is ripe for disruption. I think Foursquare is a real is a really interesting experiment in that they, you know, by a lot of metrics are wildly successful in terms of the number of users. I think they're doing really creative things in terms of using big data and taste to try to deliver local recommendations, but they even have this brand problem where people are associating with something they haven't done even for a couple years, mm-hmm. right? So 
I just I guess the point is I think the whole space is still ripe for disruption, and no matter how, how many players in it, you can get intimidated by that. But I don't believe that in five years we will all be reading really lengthy Yelp reviews. I actually am not sure all of us do that much of it today. I, I don't. I don't do any of it. I, I, what do you use? I, I I don't know. I just I, I read it and I have the exact experience. You use. I, I look, I'm like. I don't identify with someone who would come home and spend 45 minutes writing about these oh, little Oh, so it's details. almost like though you have the Woody Allen, sorry, like these people even by writing are sort of saying that they're not part of the same club. Yes, exactly. Well, sorry, exactly. just to bastardize yeah, I would never join a club that would have yeah. me as a member, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I so I sort of agree with that. So how, so how are you doing differently? So how are you solving that so, problem? So what I think is um, is a telltale, uh, sorry, is a is a warning sign of Foursquare. It just shows how hard it is to actually unseat the incumbent. So I think this is what's weird is Yelp and TripAdvisor, I think, have deeply flawed experiences. But offering something better, particularly when they have so much content and have, are so thorough, is incredibly challenging. I, my guess is the next guy who comes around, whether that's us or somebody else, will be, it's just going to make it simpler. And it, it's kind of going to do what what Apple has done and try to take away the paradox of choice and say, oh, you're looking for a date spot. Here's three ideas. Oh, you're looking for, just right. narrow it down. Curation is a, an overused term, but I think we see these, the, the polls, you go from a lot of choice to less choice. And, um, so how, so, how far along are you with with so with with, with Bobby, with Bobby Pin? And yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I think I might have interrupted you there. <laughs> oh no! So how are we solving it? So the, yeah. the product today, actually, I don't think does. To be perfectly frank, does solve discovery as much. Um, we're trying to scale. It's not a marketplace, but it's in some ways a marketplace. So you need content supply, and then you need content consumption. So content meaning like we need people to write recommendations or pin places on maps so that other people can come and look at those pins and get recommendations from them. So the first part is the supply part and we're really focusing on that. Um, and I, I would say that we've not really focused at all on the discovery and it totally lets the user down right now. So if you go to Bobby Pin right now, I think we make it pretty easy, not as easy as it needs to be to, to add pins to a map to reference them later. It's a nice little bookmarking tool where you can remember your favorite spots. It also is really easy to share them with people via um, part of the reason we kept a, a web presence on Bobby Pin is so you can send somebody a unique URL. They can access that on any device, whether they have an iPhone or whether they have the app. So it's a way to share them. Um, so I think we're focusing on the pinner right now um, with an eye that we're going to have to make the discoverability much better. But right now you can follow friends and you can see the pins that they drop. And so it's in its simplest form kind of like a Spotify for places where you can go on, you can follow your friends, you can see when they pin places and you can repin those places to your own uh, maps, which are kind of like playlists. So if you make a here are family f friendly restaurants in New York map, and I'm a friend of yours who also has a family, I can go on, see your ideas, and then repin the places that are appropriate. And then when I have my, you know, cousins visiting from New York with their family, I can shoot them that link instead of sending them the email that we all send. Um, 
that was a really long-winded way of answering your question. Well, and the bottom line is you're, you're working the problem and you're getting there. The, <laughs> the, uh, I'm ashamed. Uh, <laughs> so the, the, but the, I'm actually interested in, the, in, the, in going back to, to, to Straight Boots. You said you, know, you had an investor who came in and he gave you guys to find goals and targets and that forced a discipline on you. Have you done the same thing? Do you have very clearly defined goals and targets this time around? Or are you, are you just like letting it rip? Um, I think it's uh, it's a different game where we are today. I think even at when we came in with that first investor at Stray Boots, we had some semblance of product market fit. I don't know if that makes sense, where people were paying for it, really liking the experience, and we were just needed to hustle on distribution to some extent. Um, even early days, we just seemed to find it early where people would pay for a tour. There's a business model even, you could make money. Um, people would pay for a tour, they'd like it, and they'd write us a review on TripAdvisor at the time, and we'd get more people from that. And so there was a model to, to scale, like you could set a target. Right. I think with Bobby Pin, you know, those of us on the team doing the product development, there's only three of us, um, realized that we haven't yet achieve product market fit like mm. to add, to answer your question of what, right. what makes us different we're not that different yet and from some of the other stuff out there and we're like clearly playing around the edges of something that excites users but if we had it it would be growing organically really quickly and it's mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. and so rather than set arbitrary targets for like how much we need to grow it's not clear to us what's gonna work and so it's, I would say we're actually a little earlier in the process with a lot more experimentation, both around product and around acquisition strategies, um, with the sense that once a couple things click, then it's easier to set targets. So we do sort of set, um, I would say more like experimentation goals, um, and product cycles and other things rather than like straight user goals because it doesn't really it doesn't really tell us as much versus sort of engagement and other things from day one at uh, at stray boots until now how, how you know businesses impact individuals as well I yeah. mean, how, how much how, how have you changed as a, as a not as a manager but as a person through your entrepreneurial journey oh wow that's a great great uh, self-reflection question <laughs> um, how have I changed um, I'm sure I've become a lot more cynical uh, no, I've grown. I guess I was 25 when I started Stray Boots. I'm uh, turning 33 this spring. Uh, I think that um, I, I approach. No, I think I approach uh, the companies that I'm working on with um, a greater set of personal experiences to draw from and a longer view of the whole thing. So I guess what I mean is um, there's a, some amount of pattern recognition, which is nice. I think that's the nice thing about doing it a second time is not every situation is the same, but when you're in a situation either with an investor or with a user or with a product where something's not quite working, you have some context and you have some experience to draw from and it's not necessarily going to be the same but you know for instance 
at Stray Boots, we had such a hard time shutting stuff down and saying no to users and customers because it just, somebody asks for something, it's really hard to tell them no. Sure. So like, hey, do you guys have a scavenger hunt in Kalamazoo or in Wichita? And you're like, no, but we can make one. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible idea. Like, <laughs> don't run your business that way. And now people will say things like, you know, on Bobby Pin, like, do you have this feature? Do you have collaboration? Do you have all these other things? And it's just so, like, you just learned that to say no the first time, and now you can say no. And mm-hmm. you can, like, get over yourself that it's okay, and you can, like, write an email that's very courteous still. But I would expand that to almost, like, every part of the business. And then as a person, because that's what it was about, I think you just also – you always take stuff personally, which I think is the hardest part of entrepreneurship. For it's sure. just like when somebody writes a bad review of something or even like we get these emails asking occasionally, like uh, right now we don't have a delete account button, which is terrible on our part, but you can email us and we'll delete your account. Um, so we get these emails because we force people to tell us, like, can you delete our account? And they just crush me. They still crush me, but they crush me like a little less than they did five years ago. Um, right. I don't know if you feel I that know, I hear this. I hear this loud and clear. I mean, look, I'm, I'm 12 years in. If we have one client a year, we, we serve a lot of clients. If we have one client a year who is unhappy. It, it, it definitely, it's like a, it's a I don't know what guts. it is. It's and just, like, I remember, you know, Jordan at Qtonic, I would come back and tell him like, you know, this or that hotel didn't pick us up. And he would be, what do you mean? Why not? He would just like, I had just shot him or something. He'd get so defensive and I would be like, why are you? And I, as a, somebody who didn't own the business, I was so critical of him. And I realized as soon as I started my own thing, I like fell into the exact same trap. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's true of, of, of this tribe in general of, of entrepreneurs. I mean, so many people have sat in that chair and have said to me, you know, you just, you gotta, you, it, it's so hard, but you've gotta learn not to, not to take everything personally, that you're not, you are not your business, your yeah. business is not you. I think it's probably a good place to wrap up, because in, in addition to the fact that we're conveniently running out of time, <laughs> but uh, Avi, I wanna thank you for, for being here. My only regret is that I, had I known, I would've had, I would've had a co-host, I would've had Cheryl on the show co-hosting. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'd love well, to, we'd love uh, thank to, you. We'd love to, 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 to stay in touch and, and see how everything goes with Bobby Pin. Thanks so much for Appreciate being here. Appreciate it, thanks for having me. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.